On this episode, we'll be talking with Nate Reddy, a master sommelier who takes his academic brilliance and his world travels and uses it to shape some of the most compelling wines in the market. He's called the Hermit of Hood River. I call him the Wizard. The alchemy he applies to his winemaking is nothing short of a spiritual experience. Super, super excited to have Nate ready with me. Nate's an MS, worked in some of the best restaurants in California and Colorado, travels the world, um, an amazing winemaker. We're going to talk about some of his wines, and I'm super, super happy to have him here. Thanks, Nate. Hi, John. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Uh, so uh, the first time I met Nate, uh, he came to New York and uh, pitched his wines to uh, me and our company, and... There were so many moments of silence that I was scratching my head, baffled at how incredibly complex and brilliant the wines were. And uh, Nate didn't budge. He just smiled and stared at me with his piercing blue eyes. Just like I'm doing right now. Just like he's doing right now. <laughs> like, holy shit. And I was blown away. Um, as you probably know, I've been in the wine business for 25 years, traveled the world as well, and met many winemakers. And I have to tell you, um, Nate's wines blew my doors off. Um, so I'm super, super happy to be sitting here tasting with him um, and just uh, sitting with him and his life experiences. And uh, uh, so why don't we start with how did you end up in the gorge? Uh, so you started in, uh, you know, you were at French Laundry, you were at Frosca, you were wearing bespoke suits and you were clean shaven. And now you wear overalls, have a beard. So some people think you're in the witness protection program. <laughs> uh, <Fair>. but, <laughs> so what's the, the transformation? Yeah, I mean, it was like mostly just curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was at Frosca um, and at the laundry, there's always this culture of sort of taking the tasting appointments very seriously. And mm-hmm. we, you know, would love to ask would try to formulate and ask like really intense questions of the winemaker and like try to really understand like what was behind the wine, mm-hmm. not just in terms of like how it was made or how it was grown, but like the story behind everything. And I became more and more curious mm-hmm. about sort of the contents of that dialogue and sort of um, just learning more about what was actually happening on the ground, like in the vineyards and cellars mm-hmm. and people's lives and sort of realized I didn't, I didn't know I really know that much about the practical business of kind of how the wine that was such a big part of my wine was produced. Right. And so initially it was just sort of a curiosity. Like I should go work a harvest, work in the vineyard a little bit and just try to understand what was, what, what that was about. Cause at restaurants at that level, you're tasting the best of the best, right? I mean, everybody wants to be at Frosca. Everybody wants to be at French laundry. Sure. So, the stuff you're getting to taste is kind of blowing your mind a little bit and no, I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes right. no. And I mean, I think that's always the question is like a wine and not necessarily good or bad, but like some wines really resonate with you and some wines right. don't resonate you. And then why? Like, right. like, like why is that? Like, I think everyone's sort of searching for that answer is like, is it something that's happening again? Is it something that's happening seller? Is it something that's happening in the vineyard? Is it something that actually has mm-hmm. nothing to do or only mm-hmm. a, is obliquely related mm. to like those things. Like what is it? Why do some wines move you and some wines don't? Mm. And everybody listening is drinking wine or starting to drink wine and relates to this exact issue. Um, I've tasted a ton of wine as well. These wines moved me 
And as anyone know that who people I deal with in New York, when I talk about your wines, I'm like the first thing I say, if you haven't had them, you have to have them. And it's from the top wine buyers in the city to the most experienced wine professionals that I know. And I get the same response when I put Hayu in front of them or Smock Shop, which is your other um, wine, and it blows them away. And that's what we're talking about is this, this is energy in a wine. Um, yeah. You you do some Chardonnay, but a lot of your stuff is, well, let's talk about some of the wines you make, like the Ramato, the Hayu Ramato, and some of the whites, and the philosophy behind the, 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 the what you're doing in the fields and, and blending and, and what you're your idea as what you're getting at. It also started with, had a particular, sort of developing this kind of idea, particular idea of farming. And it wasn't like, it didn't start with a concept and then just sort of, you know, acts from there. But it really, for us, it just started with kind of, um, you know, finding our piece of land and then getting on there and working with it and kind of deciding, well, this feels good, this doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And we didn't come to it from a farming background, so we didn't have any sort of preconceived notions about what to do or what not to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a lot of trial and error, like not so much in terms of like what works and what doesn't work, but like what resonates, like what is like after you work with the land in a particular way, like did those actions feel good to you and did it like does it feel good afterwards? Does it feel like you're doing a good thing? Um, a lot know, of intuition, right? Yeah, a lot of intuition and a lot of just sort of feeling it out. Like, oh, this feels like the right thing. This doesn't feel like the right thing. Um, the And we kind of stumbled on, it's a pretty unique way of, of farming vines. Um, pretty unusual. Right. And definitely like inspired by different ideas from permaculture, natural farming, and biodynamics, but definitely the end result doesn't really resemble um, what a lot of other people um, are doing. Um, and then we were always sort of cognizant of um, of them falling through in, a, in the cellar, mm-hmm. like kind of working the cell in a way that was really consistent with sort of what was happening in the fields. Right. Um, and so in the beginning... There was no mechanization, um, so there's no tractor, right? You know, no RTV. No, so the vines were sprayed, you know, with a backpack. Um, mm-hmm. All herbal treatments, um, and we just had animals actually to control animals in a scythe to sort of control what was happening under the vines, mm-hmm. um, and and I think once you when you're the person like actually out there doing the work you sort of ask a question like is this really necessary to really need to like do this and we also had this idea coming from Fukuoka of like of minimal cuts of Mm. even you know if the ideal is sort of never touching the plant then you know how could we get closest to that and we're I'd say like so the major compromise there is that we'll make a single cut for pruning right but then afterwards, we don't make any other cuts. So explain the Fukuoka thing uh, for people listening who don't know really what like that is. He's just like the first person um, in the 50s in Japan, um, a scientist whose family had um, a citrus orchard mm-hmm. and who 
radically broke away from conventional farming practices of the time there to try to develop a system of farming that was closer to nature. Um, right. Both in barley field, barley and rice fields that were his, but also in the, the actual citrus orchard. Um, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, it definitely had to do with kind of no-till mm-hmm. um, sort of methods. And a lot of it had to do with um, a succession of crops in a way that, um, you know, was sort of really beneficial for that land and a lot of biodiversity. So then the citrus orchard, they had all these plants that could be used for food. So you'd be looking at the citrus orchard, but there'd be like all their garden crops were just sort of randomly seeded in the citrus orchard. So you'd go out there and actually like harvest your meal from like right. underneath the fruit trees and that sort of thing. And there was, you know, a lot of no pruning going on and experiments with like what the edge is in terms of like how much, how little spray can you mm-hmm. get away with and things like right. that. And so we just sort of had a lot of thoughts related to that kind of going through our head as we tried to like to farm our piece of land. Right. And um, you also have a a sustainable farm that you feed everybody from so let's talk about your utopian uh, little world here yeah. and, and explain some of the geography because uh, for most people listening um, when they think of well you know Oregon Pinot they think just Willamette uh, which are you know uh, so different from what you're doing mm-hmm. and the pace and your vision is is so unique it, it needs some explaining yeah. um, that is why when I put these wines in front of people there is such an incredible wow factor because they're just like oh it's Oregon Pinot it's not Oregon Pinot it's uh, Columbia Gorge it's Hood River um, th- explain yeah. some of the geography being so sort of, two volcanoes and- to Portland mm-hmm. and you and so the Willamette's to the southwest of Portland so you pass through a rainforest and then once the rain once the rainfall drops to about 45 to 50 inches a year is where the gorge, the wine-growing region begins. Mm-hmm. You lose an inch of rainfall every mile you move to the east, and you reach the desert in about 40 miles. So in right. 40 miles, you go from rainforest to desert, and you're moving from essentially like very cool climate mm-hmm. to um, southern Mediterranean. It's warmer than Napa in the more desert-like part of the gorge, and more heat units anyway. Um, and then the north and south boundary is our two 11,000-foot volcanoes, Mount Adams and Mount Hood. Um, and they're only 50 miles apart. And mm-hmm. so you have these two peaks in the Cascades, kind of for the northern southern boundaries, and their watersheds create valleys on either side of the Columbia River. So the north side of the Columbia, you're in Washington. The south side of the Columbia, you're in Oregon. Hood on the Oregon side and Adams on the Washington side, they're each all the the waters and rivers that flow off the slopes of those mountains basically create this series of valleys on either side that are progressively getting warmer as you go from west to east. Mm-hmm. And so you can basically grow any grape variety that you can imagine in the world in between those two mountains, rainforest and desert. It's all possible. That's pretty insane. Yeah, and it's about, in. I mean, it basically takes you kind of half an hour in any direction to reach the in a car to reach the boundary mm. of the Appalachian. So if people go on your website, Hiu, um, they'll see <coughs> this amazing story of a farm, um, these incredible dinners and lunches that you do, uh, which pairs your wines with the food right off your farm. Uh, talk about how this came, and it makes sense that it, it integrates like this. Yeah. Um, but we, We're always just interested. I mean, we, when we moved to Oregon, we wanted a small um, farm, that was ba- the self-sufficient, basically, mm-hmm. where 
um, you we would grow some grapevines for wines and have gardens and orchards, pasture for animals. So we kind of grow our own vegetables and um, raise all the meat that we consumed, eggs and milk and cheese and all this stuff and make a little bit of wine to sort of um, sort of support or kind of fund it. And, um, and the dream was always to have an experience that was about that mm-hmm. so that we would um, sort of creating food, this sort of food experience from kind of the ground up where the first step in cooking was in the garden soil prep and the first step to drink everything was sort of the say everything kind of started at this sort of the level of the, the land and really the level of the soil. Um, and it took, I felt like it was going to take a really long time to get there. And then right. things happen pretty quickly. And so today that's a 30 acre farm where all those things are in place. Um, and the wines across the board are stunning. We'll talk about those. Um, in a second, but the last time I saw you, I was in Burgundy at a restaurant, and you were heading to the Jura. Um, this is Valdosta. what the, oh Valdosta. Okay, <laughs> sorry, but so Nate travels all the time. No, but I, it's not I, true. A fair me. amount, a fair amount. But but I think uh, your your um, just curiosity about the world um, is shown in the wines. Uh, it's uh, we've talked about this at length. Some taste like they're from the Carso or. Uh, you know, some taste like you know, from their Southern Rhone, um, and the, the wines are incredible. And I think that's a direct correlation to the farming, your philosophy, and why these wines have this incredible energy in the glass that just speaks to people. Um, yeah. I mean, we always drink, like in the French laundry, one thinks that Bobby Stuckey was my mentor mm-hmm. there, and he introduced, it was sort of at the time, mm-hmm. you could only find... Um, you know, wines from Napa when you went to the French Laundry, or certainly only wines from California. And he sort of came there and introduced this concept like an international sort of wine list. Um, and he was very interested in this idea that you could grow amazing wine in all sorts of different places of the world, really before people were thinking like that. And that's always stuck with me. So I think we always, whether it was at the French Laundry or Frasca, we were always asking ourselves the question, like, okay, so these are like the wine regions of the world. Like what is the iconic, and not so much iconic, but what is the like really soulful, moving, mm-hmm. traditional wine that shows the great varietal of the region at its most transformative, evocative, like sort of magical form? Like right. what is that? Um, and now, of course, that's be and, and so especially with the Italian restaurant, this was, it was all happening in a time where people were discovering regional Italian cuisine and kind of beginning to understand that every single village had its own set of grape varieties and its own cuisine, and that this arose from the culture of sort of the place. And, and now that's, of course, emerging in really unexpected places from all over the world. Um, so in some ways, as we did our project, we were sort of cognizant of the fact that something like that should exist in the Alpine River Valley that is the Hood River Valley that we call our own and asking ourselves from the beginning like what would that look like like what right you know if you took someone you know like a Benjamin Zitterick or something like for the Carso and they are you know sort of situated in the Hood River Valley 
what kind of wine would they create? What kind of food would they create? You know, um, what should culture look like in the place we are? And how does that drive the way wines taste, the way food tastes, what you're growing, how are you growing it? Um, and so a lot of us, a lot of the questions for us now are sort of, um, sort of what does kind of cuisine and wine look like for naturally grown food like in the Hood River Valley is sort of like a big question for us. And what, and what sort of life do you have to live right. in order for that to be possible? Right. Because it's interesting because in um, New York, I think there's chefs that address it. Dan Barber addresses it in third plate. Huge. Right. Um, and my only, I, I think you, you have it right that you've built this incredible uh, farm and world where you, the food and the uh, the wine synergy is it couldn't be any more beautiful from what everyone I know who's been there, and I'm going to come hmm. see you in a, a month or two. But uh, I guess the biggest problem sometimes is just the e- economy. Um, in New York, I mean, I want to go to you know Blue Hill, but I can't afford to go because it's uh, $800 if I do the tasting menu and two bottles of wine. Um, I guess the, the question is how do you make it so that people can get really great food uh, that's the problem I mean, the, the perplexing question, I mean, everybody, that right? Is just the, I mean, you actually have to choose to, enough people have to choose to sort of live the life and you have to choose to prioritize it. I mean, I think that like we live in a moment where people spend less of their paychecks on food than in any other time in history. And so we simply just have prioritized like other things like in our lives. So we'll like, buy cheaper food. Yeah, so we we'll buy, buy cheap, bigger televisions. We, buy, we think we still think the food is expensive, but the right. prices of the food are not expensive relative to like the cost of sort of everything else and the food around us. We just buy all these unnecessary things and we don't spend enough money on the things that matter, which is basically like food shelter right we spend a lot of money on food and my, my wife conviviality and I, music right. you know yeah. i mean like all those things like right. the arts i mean you know there's this huge move away from the farms um you know in you know in the past 100 years you know in this country and then a move to sort of you know use technology and like chemical and otherwise to allow a smaller number of people to farm, you know, a given acreage. And so one of the other things like about the food and like the sort of cost equation is more, many, many, many more people have to choose to go back to the land, right? essentially. So you need more people on the land, more people caring for it, more people, whether that's in a natural environment or in a farm kind of environment and you know, progressing with that in a really thoughtful way. And then we need to compensate them. So it's just like, like we don't pay teachers enough. Like with the farming thing, it's a giant can of worms because you need people to be, to first learn, you need more people farming and more people farming properly in the right way. And that could right. take many forms, but there's certain forms that probably shouldn't take. Right. And then you need to actually compensate those people fairly relative, you know, to the market and the rest of the world for like, you know what they're doing, and so, and that's a sea change, right? That would be mm. so. If we want, you know, to have to be a part of this, like really, truly, like sort of magical thing that can exist, um, you just have to discover the joy 
of food again, which entails like really discovering in a visceral way the joy of growing food. Sure. Well, like tomato seasons upon us are coming up and, you know, people go crazy for tomatoes, but right. Enjoying yeah, incredible produce and, and, and what it's about. Um, yeah. It, it blows me away that, uh, you know, all this, you know, Michael Pollan's talked about Atlanta and uh, a lot of people have about how the nutritional density of food has dropped out. And so people have to eat more quantity to get the same exact amount of nutrition, uh, which only serves uh, the larger corporations and, uh, you know, Monsanto's and, and, and the huge farmers that have government subsidies. So they're kind of feeding themselves both economically um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately us uh, with poor, poor grade uh, produce. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's talk about your Ramato here. Yeah. Uh, this is the one that kind of got me uh, from the start. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's from our farm. And it's um, it's really the three, it's three of the four grapes that were kind of planted in Oregon, mm. kind of originally planted in Oregon, like the you know fifties and sixties and seventies, as kind of the first pioneers of what the modern Oregon wine industry, you know, as they came, um, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, and Gewurztraminer, um, all harvested together and fermented together, but picked in three picks. So there was um, an early pick. And then a more classical pick, and then a very late pick. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that we we just have we don't have we don't outsource any of the farming, and we don't outsource the harvesting. So normally, a normal winery would be really typical in the West Coast. What would happen is, you know, the farming and the winemaking are separate, and at harvest, a very large harvest crew would come. They, you know come into the vineyard 40 50 people maybe for a few acres 10 acres or whatever it is pick all the grapes once bring it to the winery in the morning and the winemaking team starts working on it we work in a more sort of traditional sort of sense where we pick all our own grapes it's just six seven of us right um and so during harvest mostly we pick grapes like we don't like we don't sort we don't do a lot of other things people are spending their time doing um it's and amazing that, how people romanticize that. Like, man, I'd love to pick grapes. I'd love to do a harvest. And then you never. And I, yeah, I was in Italy. Grape. I cut yeah. my hand twenty times. I was bleeding, and my back was killing me. And yeah. I'm like, you yeah, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out the next day. Oh. <laughs> I'll be in the square drinking espresso. <laughs> but so what happens is we can't pick very many grapes in a day. So, so at max we might harvest four tons, four and a half tons, and that would be working from you know, 5.30 in the morning until dark. Um, and so because we can't pick very much, we tend to pick most of our sites in multiple passes. Right. Um, and so we always end up with these different components from a site that are picked different different times. Right. But that the logistics of that is what, at the end of the day, gives the wine its complexity. Right, right, right. So you so picked earlier, then wine, you pick a little later, then you pick a little later. Right. So there's um, different sugar levels, there's different everything. Yeah, and now different acidity right. levels and this whole thing. Right. And so they were all co-fermented and then about five days of whole cluster skin maceration. And then we work, it's really similar to like a medieval, these sort of medieval tapestries. Like, so it goes into a hand-cranked wooden basket press and then is bucketed directly into barrel without any settling. And then it just starts it, fermenting naturally in barrels wild ferment 
and it was they were all all those different picks were separate for about a year, and then we racked them all together and spent another six months homogenizing. But basically, nothing like happens. Like you're spending all your time picking. Grapes come in the winery, put them in a bin, tread them by foot, macerate them. Once it kind of starts fermenting after about four or five days, right. throw it in the press. I think it's funny because it in the barrel, and that's it, right? It's done. Yeah, people have been to like winery tours at like you know Opus, and and they see these big, huge, shiny steel tanks and presses, and 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 you know it's, that's the way you're doing large production on a large scale. Yours is like Game of Thrones. You're you have you have buckets, and you're you're treading by foot and everything is by hand and the fermentation is natural so you don't add yeast to get it fired up and get it going um we were just looking when we thought about and again it goes to this idea of like who are the kind of great classical kind of wine producers of the world and this is how they work um and this is the equipment people use and the technique people use to produce the wines that we always thought um, showed fidelity to to the land and seemed to kind of have that little extra bit of right. magic for lack of a better No, I, I, it um, shows in the wines. Um, and my response from people, overwhelming. I have people going, ah, they taste the wine, they're like, I have no idea what this Ramato is, but I have to buy it. So let's talk about the Ramato, the this, this sensory kind of stuff here. It's like, We've we tasted today. It's just uh, textural and it's uh, textural like you know like tannin and uh, has tea components and yeah. I mean, it's an like, unusual wine. I mean, there's like smoked lemongrass and tea and a lot of smoke and then some really kind of meaty umami kind of essences. Crazy rose petal and citrus rind and um, there's both red fruits and white fruits and some. Um, and then it's you know it's all these sort of contradictory things it has it's an unfiltered wine that has residual sugar and it has high alcohol but also has really high acidity Um, and it's also a wine that we could never we'll never make again like that's the thing with the wine oh really this is it no I mean you can't replicate it right yeah yeah so yeah another skin macerated white from these Friedels yes but um, right won't taste like this, never will. And so that's vintage to vintage, right? That's every half acre of the property is planted to a different field blend of grape varieties, a different moment in history. So from a 14 acre property, you can make 28 different wines. Hmm. And then about 40 to 60 cases of each of those wines. And then they'll never ever taste the same so essentially like a sure a marketing sales like disaster <laughs> <laughs> although right. yeah it's, well there's uh, 28 new wines this year none of them wait you didn't have they don't taste the same mother nature comes puts uh, her fingerprint on it um yeah, and and changes it all but this is uh uh this is so i I'm, I'm a huge monster fan of these uh wines and i will only ever uh speak highly of something that i 100 percent believe in um, so uh, please look for the high you stuff. I'm going to do a smock shop Pinot uh, next because first you can you can explain the smock shop name, which I, I love. It, it uh, kind of backs into your story of his you know, history and stuff. So uh, let me pour it for you. I use just wines from the farm, and then we farm an additional um, three site, four sites actually. 
in the Gorge, two on the Oregon side, two on the Washington side. And those wines are smock shop band. Mm-hmm. It's more sort of about exploring the diversity. So we have Atavis, which is a very cool site above white salmon. And then we have a site called Scorched Earth, which is in the warmest possible location in the gorge. This is from a mid-ripening site on East Side Road in the Hood River Valley. It's warmer than Hayu, but cooler than our site in the desert. And it's... Um, it's Pinot Noir, planted about 20 years ago um, on cobbled, iron-rich clay, um, basalt bedrock. South-facing, looking right at the mountain. There are huge views of hood from here. I mean, this was... <laughs> I mean, it's how we yeah. normally, like, kind of... I th- say for us, like, sort of a baseline sort of way of, like, approaching Pinot Noir where, you know, there's no cold soak. The grapes are not sorted. They're put whole cluster immediately into open-top fermenters. Um, gently tread by foot. Um, and then, you know, it's on the skins for about three weeks and then goes into the wooden basket press and pressed into older barrels. Um, so get pretty, like, straightforward. And, and you don't hear wooden basket press often. I mean, I was in Galicia, and there was a gentleman uh, uh, who makes a wine called Diventur, and uh, Gerardo Mendez was making the wines. And I thought to myself, the first thing any consultant, if they came to this winery, would do is they get rid of the old basket press because it's not high-tech enough. Um, but I think it's also what you just already talked about. It removes something of uh, – it's a soul. It's an energy sort of that's not there. I mean, for me, but. like – um, it's one, it's the simplest way of working because there's, you can't mess it up. Mm-hmm. So the wooden basket press, I mean, it's just going in a single plane. Mm-hmm. It always produces, like basically the difference between using a basket press and using a, a rotating bladder press is that with a rotating bladder press, every single time you make the rotation, you increase the turbidity of the juice. The juice becomes cloudier. It becomes less high quality, essentially. But by doing that rolling, you're able to increase the yield. Right. With the basket press, the juice is always perfect. It starts, it's clear from the very beginning and always stays clear. But the yield is just not very good. Like So, so in the rotating bladder press, someone might make the argument that you get, like with the white wine, 150 gallons per ton or maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and they'll say you're not compromising the quality, but you're compromising right. the quality. And the, like, so with sure. the basket press, if you don't do a retruce, which would essentially introduce the same kind of turbidity in a basket press by, right. um, you know, it's kind of what you've seen in champagne where you take it after pressing, after making initial pressing, you take a pitchfork or a shovel and kind of loosen, loosen the cap or the cat or the basically loosen that pomace and then right. press again. If you don't do a retrousse of the basket press, you know, we might get 130 gallons per ton tops, but it's realistically more like 120 gallons per ton. But all of the juice is perfect. So all these numbers that Nate is talking about is basically talking at the end of the day, it means less bottles to sell, less dollars for for him, uh, but the quality and what's in the bottle is most important. And that's, that's yeah. what we're really talking about. And then it's also about oxygen. Right. And so that like, they're like, you know, kind of two like big kind of schools of like wine, how you're relating to oxygen reductive versus oxidative and very much in the oxidative camp and basically believing that, you know, in exposing the wine to 
as much oxygen as possible early, you inoculate it from oxidation later on. And also that we believe in transforming grape juice into wine, not trying to hold the grape juice in some sort of static sort of right. place. So we're looking for like m- maximum transformation. Whereas I think in a more reductive school, you're trying to hold that transformation in check. Right. And we really want it to run. Um, I've, I've put this Pinot Noir in, some, in front of some of the best buyers in New York City. And I've had comparisons to Grand Cru Burgundy, uh, some of those hallowed vineyard sites and producers that I won't name drop, but um, this Pinot is unlike people's perception of what an Oregon Pinot tastes like. Um, it's more, uh, it's it's got more spice, intensity, blueberry, blackberry, um, it, it, and it just goes on and on. And I watch people's eyes almost roll back in their head, particularly if they're, you know, you and I have been to Burgundy many, many times, and particularly if they love Pinot Noir, um, we saw today, I was with Nate running around, and people were like, you know, would just point and go, oh, my God. Oh, man. Um, and it's just what you do is really apparent, and it shows in the, in the glass, in the bottle. Um, and it, 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 this is really a visionary We personally don't try, like, like to compare no. the whites of Burgundy. Right, but... but- but in our market, when in New York, you know, the Psalms know what they know. Everyone likes to do a reference, you know, oh, the, that guy looks like uh, Joe Pesci uh, meets uh, William Defoe, right? We like a reference point. Right. <laughs> uh, we saw William Defoe today on the train. Uh, but it's just, uh, I, and so I think that's the only thing they can wrap their head around is I got to relate this Pinot Noir to something that I've tasted. And it's it's a compliment to you that they go to these like hallowed places in Burgundy. So... And there's a whole other slew of wines we could talk about that uh, that will come out under Smock Shop. And Smock Shop uh, Band is uh, explain the name because I think that's kind of interesting. It's a name from a Lewis and Clark map from the 1800s. And so there's a just an oldest map that you can find of the Columbia Gorge. It's like really prominently located um, name on the map. And we we're just trying to we wanted to use a name that. Um, would sort of locate us at the point of discovery of the gorge, um, and then kind of hope to chart our own path, like from that moment, not necessarily what has actually transpired since that time. Wow, that's that's a pretty amazing outline. So we're going to leave with a final question. Uh, you can have dinner with three musicians, alive or dead. Who are they going to be? I'll give you mine, and this will change daily for me. Uh, it would be Jim Morrison. <laughs> who'd be passed out of the table by the way uh frank sinatra and uh bruce springsteen and not because i lived in jersey for any time but i think bruce springsteen is like one of the most amazing lyricists and uh, american songwriters uh, that we have so give me your three musicians oh man <laughs> it's really good putting you on the spot day. right um, look at if it's justin timberlake don't feel embarrassed. Look, he no, brought sexy I mean, back. I'm terrible. I mean, I grew up as a classically trained trumpet player. Wow. So we go going bang. Um, so I think I'd probably have to say Bach, Mahler. All right. And, um, Miles make the cut. Probably Miles. I think I'd have yeah. to say Miles. 
I want to thank Nate for joining me. Uh, I spent today running around New York City with him. Uh, I, I love his company, and I love the way he just blows people away with his uh, humbled uh, knowledge and these incredible wines that I highly recommend you ask for Hayu, and please look at their website. It tells an amazing story, and the Smock Shop band stuff. It'll blow you away. Thanks, and we will speak to you soon. Bye. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. 